Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs Podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies you can use to get the breakthrough that you are looking for in your life. I am your host, Chris Donahue, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Nevada Gray. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we'd like to invite you to join our free private Facebook community, Mind Body Breakthroughs. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet or fitness. You can't fake a great steak. You can enjoy a steakhouse experience a few nights a year or every night with your Auto Wild Grill. Sear in amazing flavor and moisture with 1,500 degrees of grilling perfection. A perfect steakhouse crust every time on your time. Bring your own steak and let Otto take care of the rest. Make your house the great steakhouse in your neighborhood for your family and friends. Investigative journalist and anthropologist Scott Carney has worked in some of the most dangerous and unlikely corners of the world. His work blends narrative, nonfiction, and ethnography. What Doesn't Kill Us was a New York Times bestseller. Other works include The Red Market and The Enlightenment Trap. Carney was a contributing editor at Wired for five years, and his writing also appears in Mother Jones, Men's Journal, Playboy, Foreign Policy, Discover, Outside, and Fast Company. His work has been the subject of a variety of radio and television programs, including on NPR and National Geographic TV. In 2010, he won the Payne Award for Ethics in Journalism for his story, Meet the Parents, which tracked an international kidnapping to adoption ring. Carney has spent extensive time in South Asia and speaks Hindi. He attended Kenyon College and has a master's degree in anthropology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He currently lives in Denver, Colorado. We hope you enjoy today's episode. As always, hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners. Scott Carney, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Welcome. We're so excited that you're here. Scott, this is, a, this is a real treat. Super excited to talk to you. I want to hear everything. We want to hear about your new book. We want to hear about your travels. We want to hear about all these new insights that you've had. Uh, I just want to say right off the bat that your book, What Doesn't Kill Us, was totally life-changing for me. Just opened up new doors in my mind, opened up new possibilities, got me really excited about what we are capable of. And that's so much of your work is, you know, how far we have fallen and how much we can become. When you talk mm -hmm. about the next level of evolution for, for mankind, I think we're just scratching the surface. So we want to peel back some of those layers today and hear some, hear some about this. But why don't you start off for those that aren't familiar? Just tell us about yourself and about your journey. 
Sure. So I'm an investigative journalist and anthropologist uh, who has been sort of just working on stories that have interested me for the last 20 odd years. Oh my God, I'm so old. Yeah, over 20 years now. And uh, the, the, you know, and it, it really, my work really spans a really wide variety of things. You know, initially I was living in India. I was a foreign correspondent for NPR and uh, Wired and Mother Jones and these various big publications. Uh, and my first beat was on organ trafficking. Uh, I was investigating the way people buy and sell human body parts. Uh, it was a book called The Red Market, uh, where I really saw the worst that humanity has to offer and, and understand how when you mix commerce and medicine, you can get some really, really uh, absurdly bad outcomes. Um, and, you know, that, that whole thing, you know, organ trafficking is real. It's a thing that happens. I, I know the guys who do it. Um, and, uh, and then I wrote another book on, um, on how meditation, uh, the dark side of, of meditation. Um, you know, I had this experience where I was on a meditation retreat in India, you know, all like 10, 15 years ago, where one of my students, um, so I was leading a group of, of students uh, and we went to this silent meditation retreat and on the retreat, you know, after meditating on bliss and nirvana and all these really, you know, very positive things um, uh, silently for 10 days. Uh, at the end, one of my students committed suicide uh, and writing in her journal, she said that she had been enlightened. You know, she said she was a bodhisattva, which is a type of Buddhist angel. And that if, you know, she could only leave her body, she would, um, you know, uh, be enlightened essentially. And, and so this really set me off on this path of looking at this dark side of something that we all think is pretty good, like meditation's pretty good, yoga's pretty good, but there's this madness that's associated with it. And there's a lot of people who go on these really dark paths. And, um, and so I built, built my career on these two sort of pillars, right? Organ trafficking and like dark meditation. And then I heard about this dude named Wim Hof, who was this guy who was teaching a meditation program where he could be naked on a, on a glacier and control his body and control his immune system, do these things that were sort of crazy. And, and so I went off to debunk him. I got a commission from Playboy magazine. I flew out there with the you know, intention of, you know, at this point, Wim was, a, was not famous. Like Wim was like sort of a circus freak. You know, he showed up on the internet sometimes. I think he'd done like a Columbia sportswear jacket advertisement, but he wasn't really known. And I went to his very first organized training session, um, basically wanting to get ahead of the problem that he was going to cause. And, uh, but it turned out I did his breathing method. I, I, I did his like ice immersion stuff. And all of a sudden I was doing the same stuff that he was doing. You know, we kind of climbed up a mountain. I was in my bathing suit and, uh, and uh, it, it, it really changed my life. It, it actually even put an autoimmune illness that I had into remission, um, a very minor one, um, but it, it like disappeared after doing the Wim Hof method. And now I've been doing it you know, I've sort of became a convert, right? And I've been doing that ever since I first met him in 2000, January 2011. And I've done all these crazy feats. So I ended up climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro in, a ba in like my bathing suit, shirtless, I did it really fast. Uh, and that was the book, What Doesn't Kill Us. So I sort of went from this total um, skeptic of meditation, especially the people trying to get superpowers, um, to, well, look, it's not just superpowers. These are things that we have evolutionarily, and there are some techniques that can help us get us there. Um, and then finally, I have this new book that's out called The Wedge, 
um, which just released in April, uh, which is after having done the Wim Hof method for 10 years, how can we expand it past um, ice baths and breathing? How can we, um, you know, look at the fundamental principles that Wim Hof uses, which is putting yourself in intensive stressful situations, then controlling your body's response. How can we use that in everything? And so that's where I am currently. And there's more books in the works. (laughs) That is absolutely fascinating. And it really goes to show how far we have fallen, but ultimately what we have within ourselves and everything we need is within ourselves so what is our potential what are there's infinite possibilities what's what's the state of the world in our potential I mean, that's a good question I, I i don't necessarily agree that everything we have is within us um, because i do think that who we are as people doesn't end at our skin right like i am not a person that exists sort of autonomously with no external interactions. I am who I am because of my external reactions, my relationships with other people, um, my relationships with the environment, my relationships with stress. And I see life as as a back and forth between encountering stress and then and then who you are is how you actually respond to that. Like, do you run from stress? Do you, do you increasingly um, cocoon yourself into this place of eternal comfort? And, you know, we can do that. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But personally, I feel like who we are as people is who we are under stress. And the more stress that you can encounter and thrive in is the better, more full person you can be. But the trick is if you push too much and you do all stress and you end up hurting yourself or you end up jumping off a roof like my student did in search of superpowers, you're crazy and that's a problem. So there is this balance, like there's no, I mean, we can't fly to my knowledge, right? We can't levitate, we can't walk through walls. Um, you know, I'm not so sure about telepathy either. There's lots of things that are out there where I'm like, yeah, I don't know. But we do have these things called sensations, right? Where our body feels things. And when you feel things, the reason that we have sensation at all, if you think at it like a really abstract level, it's because evolution put it there because a sensation is a choice, right? It's not automatic, right? Your body does a lot of things that are automatic that, that, that you know, your heartbeat, you usually can't, I mean, you can feel your heartbeat, but you often don't, right? You can't really feel your arteries moving or your, or secreting uh, ghrelin or any of these hormones. Like you don't really feel that stuff. It just sort of happens. But when you actually have a sensation, that's because evolution put it there to give you a choice. Like this thing's happening and your automatic system can't um, decide for you. So it's like kicks it up to the higher brain cortical matter. And, and then you have a choice. How will you respond to this thing that's happening outside your body or sometimes inside your body? And then when we realize that we, we don't throw away sensation, we don't just say it's, it's, you know, sensations meaningless. We're just machines. We'll just take a pill to fix our stuff. No, sensations are vital, um, to, to who we are and how we react in the world. And, and, uh, and we can actually use them, their tools to change the way our bodies operate. Yeah, that is super powerful and so important for today. I mean, we're living in a sea of stress and understanding our place in it and using it and leveraging it is just, you know, so, so crazy to think about. I want to talk about nature. Uh, I've believed for 20 years now that a big part of our 
problem is that we're just disconnected from nature. We're disconnected from sun and from you yeah. know, just the natural world around us. And I know that you talked a lot about that in your first book. Uh, how has our climate-controlled, comfortable lives just ruined our mental and physical health? Yeah, well, if you think about where we are as a species, you know, our you know our bodies are um, essentially the same as they were three hundred thousand years ago. Um, that that's that's the, the the length of time that Homo sapiens, that's our species, has existed on the on the planet, and uh, we that so that that biological form rose up because of its interaction with the environment, natural selection, you know, mutation, that whole evolutionary process, uh, and. So if you go back to our archaic ancestors, the stresses we felt were immediate. Like you see a tiger and the tiger's running at you, um, you're probably gonna get eaten. But, but if you don't get eaten, right, you're, you're gonna dump adrenaline, you're gonna dump cortisol, and then you're gonna, you're gonna go to full fight or flight and you're either gonna you know, punch the lion in the nose and somehow get away or climb up a tree or whatever it is you're gonna do to get away from the lion, and, and which meant, the stress, I mean, we've always had stress, right? You said we don't live in a world, we live in a world with constant stress. Um, well, we've always lived in a world of constant stress, but the nature of that stress is different. You know, I was running, I was fighting a lion with my spear. I was, you know, it was really hot one day and really cold in my body. It was the only thing that I had to do that, to, to answer with. As we have gotten better and better and better with technology, starting with, you know, picking up a rock and, you know, doing whatever you do with the rock to fire, to, to air conditioning and space shuttles and whatever else we have now, um, we have become more and more um, dependent on our technology to insulate us. And now, while we still feel stress in this world, right, you know, you know, anyone, everyone right now is stressed out about COVID and like our political situation and, you know, and for good reason, like these are stresses, but when you are... Um, I don't want to talk about the the the, the political protests because actually it pulls us into a different territory. But if you're let's say you're looking at your taxes, right, which are stressful, um, taxes make me stressed out. I hate paying money, and and when I do that, I'm I'm sitting in front of my computer trying to like figure a way to like jockey my taxes in a better way. And but I still have that archaic body. I still have that body that was here 300,000 years ago. So I dump, dump adrenaline and I dump cortisol, adrenaline for energy, cortisol for pain relief, neither of which I need in the moment for doing my taxes. I just need my brain to like sort out the stuff. And that release, what we say, when we, when we talk about stress now, that release, um, it, you know, there's no physical output the way our ancestors had, you know, the lion's coming at you, you're going to run, which is physical. You're going to stab it, which is physical. Um, and I can't stab my taxes no matter how much I want to, right? I, I might be able to throw my computer out the window, but that's not very useful. And, and so that energy then builds up in your body and that creates what we call anxiety now, right? Anxiety is essentially your fight or flight system going crazy and having no physical output to it. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, I think, I hope that answers your question. It does. It does. So, you know, when you look at animals, it's fascinating. After that stressful experience, you know, you'll see them 
they kind of shake little involuntary flexors and then they kind of get back to that baseline. It's really interesting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what is the equivalent for, for the human animal? How can we deal with those types of events more effectively? Um, so you're talking, uh, can you, can you be a little more specific when you, about what you're talking about? Yeah, you know, I've seen uh, videos of like these gazelles, let's say, or these deers that have been chased. And then after the the stressful experience, they kind of have these little, you know, they kind of shake and, and little mm -hmm. twitches and just little ways where they're kind of letting the stress settle down. And then they kind of get back to that, that baseline, back to that normal. And I've heard scientists and some doctors talk about some of the processes behind that. And then I was just wondering if you had insights into ways that we can practically overcome, you know, breath work and those types of things that we can mm -hmm. bring ourselves down, calm ourselves down after one of these stress overloads. Sure. Well, it's hard for me to put my my mind into a gazelle's brain because I don't know what they're doing after they get chased by a lion. Um, but I will say that that there, you know, this tech, this set of techniques and set of ideas that I call the wedge is 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 sort of central to this, which is is you know, um, you always have a choice when you face a stress to. To, to do one thing or the other. And our, our, our nervous system is basically two pathways. It's called parasympathetic and sympathetic. And these are, these are innervated by the vagus nerve. And there's only two options for you to exist in, in a neural state right now. One is fight or flight and one is rest and digest. And usually we're in a mix of those two. And there's times you want to be in fight or flight for sure. And there's times you definitely wanna be in rest and digest. And so just about everything we experience is trying to um, determine what's the most optimal path in those, in, in those two pathways. And literally, when I say pathways, I'm talking about actual nerves, like actual nerves with actual, you know, like chemical and electrical firings in those nerves. And, uh, you know, I love the Wim Hof method. Like the Wim Hof method is, 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 is one of my favorite things to do in the world. I still do it, at, you know, 10 years later, I'm still doing it every single day. And what it does is, you know, we live in this world where we don't have real physical stresses. We don't have real outputs for, um, uh, for our body, for the stresses that we sort of accrue passively. And so what the Wim Hof Method is one way to give yourself a physical um, uh, experience. And, uh, and, and the way it works, there's two parts. One is jumping into ice water. And when you jump into ice water, your body wants to do one thing. It triggers your sympathetic, which is your fight or flight pathways and says, oh my God, I'm going to die, right? That's what it's telling you. And even after 10 years of doing this, it still says that. So that never really goes away. You know, the signal from the outside world is death. And so what you do in that situation, in that stressful situation, is you say, no, it's not death. I am going to relax. So you're, with your natural inclination, which is tension, every, every muscle in your body tenses, especially between your shoulders, but like your butt, like freaking everything tenses and naturally. And what you're doing instead is saying, no, I am going to relax in this intense situation to say, it's not so bad. And when you do that, you're, you're literally overriding all of that autonomic death programming and saying, no, I can relax in the face of death. And, and, uh, and, and in truth, 
ice water is not deadly. Like it can be, you know, you're there for like, like, you know, an hour, you might die. Right. Um, but, but if you're, but it, you know, in the first second, the first five minutes, even 10 minutes of an ice bath, you're not going to die. You're going to be okay. And if you can train yourself to relax in that stress, you become sort of overall more emotionally resilient because it, it's a transferable, um, uh, skill, right? And, and we're talking in the grammar of your nervous system, not in the grammar of your higher cortical matter, not in your brains. Um, the other part of the Wim Hof method is really cool, which is his breath work, where it's essentially hyperventilating, which is, you know, <sighs> breathing really fast. And that is, again, your sympathetic nervous system. That's, it's telling your body by, by doing a practice in your head, just telling your body that you're panicking, that you're in a fight or flight situation, but you're controlling your, you're controlling that panic sensation, but you're doing that. So you go from sympathetic to then exhaling and holding your breath, which is totally parasympathetic. And, and you're going to straighten to rest and digest. And then you stay in there as long as you can until you start to feel that urge to breathe, which then flips you back over into sympathetic. So, so what we're doing here is we're, we're doing contrast between those two neural pathways of the vagus nerve. And, and when you do that, you get, again, more emotionally resilient. You get, you get more okay with that sense of threat, with that sense of impending death. Uh, and, and, you know, so the other techniques that I talk about in, in the book, The Wedge, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at other types of breath work. I'm looking at fear. I'm looking at uh, a sensory deprivation tank. So when you're in a place where you have no sensation, what does that do to you? Um, because usually I'm talking about strong sensations. I'm looking at MDMA, which is, a you know, ecstasy. And how all of these things create sensations and emotions that you ha can respond to and then gain an overall better resilience in life. And that's a true testament to how we often live within the boundaries of our mind. And I know that just in reading some neuroscience, we have an operating system that's downloaded by the time we're six or seven years old in that theta brainwave state. And we carry that operating system with us. And subconsciously, we, we do things and we don't quite know why we do them or we may be unaware. How can we use the role of meditation and hypnosis and some of these strategies in real life uh, to be able to download an operating system that better serves us. So yeah, everything you do in life programs your brain, right? And programs your body. And, and so every interaction is sort of a, a, a cruise who you are as a person. Uh, and, you know, if we think about this, so there's this, um, I talk a lot about neural symbols and neural symbols are a, um, let me see, how do we explain this easily? Let's, let's, let's talk about how your brain encodes all information anyway. Right. And, and I, and let's go back to, um, the ice bath. Cause we can all sort of imagine what an ice bath is. We can really do this with anything. And let's make a hypothetical situation where, you know, you're a, you know, you're a, a, at your age now, but for some reason you've never experienced cold. I don't know why that is, but you've never experienced cold in your whole life. And now we're going to throw you into an ice bath. So this probably never happened for anybody. Hypothetical. Now, when you jump into that ice water, um, 
at first, it's just your body in the environment, right? So think about your skin and, 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 and it's against your body. And then your nerves pick up this sensation. Uh, and it's like, oh my God, here's all this data coming in. And it's just raw. It doesn't mean anything because your body doesn't know what's going. So it rockets up from your peripheral nervous system, through, so your nerves, um, and, 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 and it goes in through into your spinal cord, right? And it's still just data. And then it goes up your spinal cord into the lowest level of your brain. And again, this doesn't take very long, but we're slowing it way down to explain what's going on. And in the lowest part of your brain, it's the limbic system. They call this the lizard brain. It also happens to be the center for emotions. And that's very important here. Um, so it arrives and, and the signal comes in and you can think about the limbic system as a type of library, if you will. And, and it's a library of every sensation you've ever felt. And so there's this librarian in the library and she's like, oh, I got this new new, new, new new sensation, but it's just data, it has no meaning, but she knows it's really strong because there is a really volume button on a sensation that's coming because ice water is hugely strong. And she says, but what does it mean? And she looks at the, her bookshelves of all the sensations she's ever felt, but re remember this is hypothetical and this is an empty shelf. <laughs> and she says, okay, great. I don't know what this is, so you're, so it's still meaningless in your brain. Even though it's in your brain, it's still meaningless at this point. So she kicks it over to this other part of your brain called the paralimbic system. Uh, it's about a centimeter away, and in there is essentially a book binder. He makes the books that go on her shelves, and he says, she sent this book in, and and it's a really loud signal, and he looks at it and says, huh, really loud signal. We've never had it before, so what he does and this is very important, is he pairs that sensation with your current emotional state, right? And so you probably had some sort of autonomic reaction that was, that was even lower in your brain stem, which made this unmitigated terror and horror, right? This is just like really bad. And, and so he translates that sensation into unmitigated terror and horror, binds it into a book, sends it back down to the librarian who files it away and says, great, unmitigated terror and horror, ice water, cool. And then you go about your business of, of hating the ice bath. Now, here's the really, really important part of cognition is that let's say um, it's five seconds later and, 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 uh, and your brain senses the ice bath again, right? And it sends that signal in through uh, the, the channels, goes up through the brain stem, it gets there to the librarian. She's like, oh, look, ice water. I know what this means. This means unmitigated terror and horror because I already have it on my bookshelf, which means that every time you feel anything, you are living in your emotional past. Okay. And, 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 so, and, and, and if you think about where the brain is in your body, it's, it's in your head and that's where most of your consciousness sits, right? That's at least your higher cognition sits in your brain and it's, and your brain is in what? brain spinal fluid basically salt water hanging out in your head and the only way it knows anything about the world is through this process everything you do is if you think about neural symbols and we talk you use the software analogy about downloading and whatnot um i like to think of it more as programming versus downloading because it's coming in from the outside and your body is always trying to figure out how the world works through the neural symbols. And you can think about neural symbols as like bits and bytes of a computer program, like the, the ones and zeros. And if you just have a one and a zero, if you just have ice water, you can't do much with that, right? You don't have human cognition. But when you have billions of neural symbols, um, all of a sudden you start building up to what we have as cognition. 
and and so that's the really important learning thing here, learning thing, a lesson, um, uh, where, you know, wherein if we know this process, then we can start to decide to build new neural symbols because we can actually create, you know, you can call it the power of positive thinking, right? If you're in a, a happy emotional place right now and a, and, and a sensation comes in that's not necessarily toxic to you, then you will have a, um, a positive association with that, which then will carry forward into your future life. And you, that's how you reprogram your body. Yeah, that, you know, it is just amazing what we can do. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the intersection of the mind and the body when it comes to the autonomic uh, control that we can gain and how it affects our health, our immune system. Uh, of course, Wim's famous experiment, you know, with the, with the botulism toxin and, and him and the people that he trained his technique not responding to it the way the control group did. Just kind of delve into that for us and, and uh, unpack that for us. Sure. So the, when you think about the our, our immune systems right now, right, which is that, uh, you know, the epidemic that that many of us are fighting, other than, of course, the pandemic of COVID, right? The epidemic that, that that's, that's rocketing through the first world is autoimmune illnesses. So this is Crohn's disease, lupus, arthritis, um, you know, anything where your immune system is attacking itself. And uh, if you think about the immune system, it's essentially like a pack of wolves, right? You know, these are macrophages, B cells, T cells, all that stuff. And there's this pack of wolves that's out there trying to kill the, the bad things that come in, the viruses and the bacteria that might hurt you. And that pack of wolves, when you're not giving them um, proper things to do, that will, those wolves can get bored. And, 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 you know, what I mean by which is if, you, if they're not regularly fighting things, because we're not really exposed to the same number of pathogens as we used to be, um, we're not correctly utilizing our nervous systems, because when, I do, when I'm doing my taxes, I'm jumping adrenaline and cortisol, that is a global event in my body, because adrenaline affects everything. And that means those wolves, those killer macrophages with their big bad teeth, are also doused in adrenaline that doesn't have a, the correct physical output. So it actually goes into your immune system and then that it goes to chomp something. So the, the Wim Hof experiment, the thing that was that, that's so groundbreaking and why the Wim Hof method is a step above almost every other wellness technique out there is because um, he claimed that he could consciously turn off his autoimmune system, his, his, his sorry, his immune system, not his autoimmune system, his immune system, um, which is was not possible. Like we, the science at that point said, it's not possible to turn off your immune system. You can't think off your macrophage, right? Um, but he said, no, he can do it. And he did the same training protocol that I did in Poland the first time with him, which is just the breathing protocol and the ice baths and sort of going through this stuff. Very easy to learn. You can learn it in a week. And uh, and he went to Radboud University uh, and uh, with two immunologists who injected that who immunologists were testing their careers were sort of made around testing uh, anti-rejection drugs. So if you have a kidney transplant, for instance, and they put a new kidney into you, um, your your immune system will kill that kidney. You'll have an organ rejection, which is an interesting parallel to my first book where I talked about kidney selling. And, and, and so what you need to do is you need to take drugs like cyclosporin or more modern things that, that turn off your immune system so that it doesn't eat up 
that that kidney that you just got. So they had tested the effectiveness of those drugs. Right? You following me so far? Okay. Yes. So so. Uh, and the way the test worked is they, they would inject you with endotoxin. Endotoxin is not botulism, but like you said, it's actually E. coli bacteria oh. that, has been, that has been killed. So the heat killed it, so it's not live. But because the cell walls of E. coli trigger a fever response in anybody, um, you can inject this, this, this heat-killed E. coli, and then you will get a fever immediately because we have this sort of innate primary immune system, they call it. So when you get the flu, for instance, um, the, 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 when you feel bad when you have the flu, the runny nose, the achy joints, the fever, that is not actually the virus making you feel sick. That's actually your immune system turning on to fight the virus in the primary system. And then there's a secondary system um, that we'll, we can go into it some other time. Um, but but so, so if you can, uh, if you're injected with endotoxin, you should have that primary immune response, the fever, the aches, and the chills. But if you were on cyclosporin, uh, the 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 anti-rejection drug you your primary immune system is basically asleep so you would have no effect from the endotoxin what wim hof claimed was that his breathing protocol and his ice baths were the same as cyclosporin which is crazy and they said that's not possible but lo and behold they injected him with it and he had no real symptoms he had some some effects but nothing dramatic like you would that like the scientists would expect and they were like wow that's really crazy um but maybe you're just a freak and wim hof is a freak so they they said let's test it again with mm, i think it was 12 college students who all did the same training and 99 percent of people will respond with a fever if they get injected with this e coli um heat killed e coli um they injected all of these people with the e coli after doing one, only one week of training and they all had the same effect as Wim, which showed that Wim Hof method could consciously subdue your immune system against uh, in this sort of laboratory setting. Now, we haven't had a ton more studies done on this, but it seems to indicate that if you have an autoimmune illness, the Wim Hof method um, will work to maintain it, to sort of um, put it into remission. I mean, we don't really, we can't really talk about cures, but we can say that if you're doing these practices, you're at least giving those wolves of your immune system chew toys, right? We're giving them something to do uh, instead of chomping on yourself. That's so interesting because we can truly think ourselves sick and make ourselves sick and sure. we can make ourselves well. And one thing that's fascinated me in science is the concept of spontaneous remission. There's thousands of case reports in the medical literature of mm -hmm. proven spontaneous remission. And you spoke using the Wim Hof method of your own autoimmune illness going into remission. And I was just wondering if you could speak to what you, you're seeing in your work and what you've experienced with spontaneous remission. So spontaneous remission I like to think about the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. Because spontaneous rem remission, to me, seems to have sort of this miracle um, feel to it, and it's you know, and it seems unexplained. It's also very wide because we hear about spontaneous remission of cancer and we about these things. And I don't think we should have people pin their hopes 
um, that they're going to get spontaneous remission. I just had a friend who was very much into the wellness industry who just died of sarcoma, and it wasn't because she didn't try hard enough. Okay, so that's the first thing that I think we need to put out there is that that this is not a magic bullet. Um, what what we can do is try to learn the language that our that our nervous systems uh, work in to give ourselves the best possible um, uh, hope. You know, if we think about the ma mainstream medical science, right? We we like the, the idea of treating the body like it is a machine. Like, you know, you got a problem and then, yo, I'll solve it. Put, take this pill and it will resolve it. I'm paraphrasing someone, I'm not gonna tell you who. And, um, and you, like, like, it, like we, we think of that problems have obvious answers and there's some sort of mechanical solution. And there are miracle pills out there, for instance, antibiotics, right? Like you have a bacterial infection, do not try to breathe that away, just pop a Cipro and it's gonna take it because it actually kills the bacteria, which is messing you up. But when we talk about chronic conditions, um, uh, Western science is actually not so great at dealing with it, right? You know, there's a pill that then you have to take for like the rest of your life and it has side effects. And you know, for some people it can, it can, it's an okay path to take, but it's not necessarily the only ones. And, and um, so there's this study that came out, a case report, you talked about case reports, so we'll talk about a case report. Um, and, I, and I begin one of the chapters in The Wedge with this guy, where this man, and I forget his name, I think his, his, his name was M, in sort of the anonymized, oh, sorry, anonymized um, medical literature. M t uh, 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 shows up at the ER, he has, he has this argument with his girlfriend, and he takes this whole bottle of pills that he had, um, where he was in a clinical trial for, uh, I think it was an antidepressant, right? He was in this clinical trial for an antidepressant. He gets in this argument with his girlfriend and he just pops the whole bottle of pills, either to make him much better or to kill himself. We're not sure. And so, and then he starts feeling really, really lousy. So he runs to the ER and says, nurse, I took all my pills. And then he passes out right at the desk of the ER, like passes out. They've taken his blood pressure. It's ridiculously low. His heart rate is off the charts. Like this guy is dying. And, and, and the medical staff are like, oh my God, we got to go figure out what he took. And they, they look at his pill bottle, which he brought. And they're like, huh, um, there's a phone number. It just says like clinical trial drugs. So they race to call the clinical trial and say, what did this guy take? What is, you know, what is he currently dying of? And, they, and the, the clinical trial looks him up and says, yeah, he's in our trial, but that's just the placebo. That's just the, that's the, it's sugar. It's like sugar pills or even less like talcum powder or something. And, and, uh, and they tell the guy that he's on the placebos and he, and, and he's like, sort of like goes from this death state where, where they have real clinical measurements to being like, oh, actually, I guess I'm okay. And this sort of shows, and this is what they, they call the nocebo effect, which is the negative, the evil twin, think yourself sick side of, the, of the, the, the placebo effect. And what's really important about this is that it correlates with actual physical changes. And this is what we don't, this is what medical, the medical industry 
um, generally tries to kick under the rug. They say, when you hear something that says, oh, that's just placebo, right? Someone got better and it was homeopathy, which, you know, homeopathy, there's no active agent in it. It really is just the power of positive thinking. And personally, I'm not a big fan of homeopathy. I think it's sort of um, crap, but nonetheless, it's still all placebo. And, and I think there's better placebos than homeopathy is what I'm saying, because it's still trying to pretend that it's a pill, right? It's, it's a pretend pill. Um, but so, but we generally say if it's just placebo, we say it's not real medicine. And this is what the problem is with the Western um, system, is that if you get better, it was medicine. And even if we look at the drugs that we take, um, uh, you know, they're like something like for pain relief, or actually most chronic conditions that you do, you will get, uh, you'll, you'll go through the FDA approval, right? Where, where it's this billion dollar study and uh, it takes years and years to do animals models, human models, all that stuff. And the FD, and they, they always test it against the placebo. So they have a control group, like our friend who took all the pills was in, which is the inactive medicine, and they have the control group. And if the control group does better than the placebo group, we say it is medicine. And if it does worse, we say it is not medicine. And that's how FDA approval works. However, what we almost always neglect to, to say is that especially for the chronic conditions, it's not true for antibiotics, right? Um, that sometimes a, 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 a drug will be approved when it's only two or 3% better than the um, placebo. And, you know, this is crazy, you know, Rogaine, hair club for men, you know, regrows the hair on your head. Um, I saw one study where Rogaine, it was like 25% effective at regrowing the hair on your head, um, which is great, okay? But the placebo was like 20%. Which means to me, when I look at that statistic, is that the placebo was by far the most uh, effective part of that medicine, and the medicine was only 5% effectiveness. And I think we really have to interrogate the way we think about medicine, especially in these sorts of clinical trials where we're comparing about the medicine. So why do we spend so much money inventing drugs that are only just marginally better than placebos when we could try to develop a better placebo, you know? Why not, why not just make a better placebo? Or, or, or why not take the drug that is the Western medicine and then mix it with the placebo response? And actually we're seeing some great doctors um, who are doing that, who are saying, look, I was talking to this cardiologist um, not so long ago who was saying, um, he actively uses the placebo effect when doing heart surgery on people. And, and he ran these, these you know, sort of casual studies where he would have people who had, you know, had a, some sort of heart blockage. I don't know, I don't speak cardiologist, so I'm just gonna sort of make up some of the terms. So he had a heart blockage and he would, and, and he would, and he would show a person a picture of, through an angiogram, right, of the blockage, like yellow plaque in the wall. And so that's really bad. And, you know, this is a really bad, and we're going to fix it by cleaning out that plaque. And then, um, and then he'd do the surgery, and then he'd show them the plaque all cleaned up, a picture of a clean and perfect heart. And he also did this without showing people those pictures. And he said the people who, who got the pictures of the before and after result um, did much better in their recovery afterwards. And that's a great example of how we can mix Western medicine and this sort of idea of maximizing the placebo effect uh, that I think we can all agree is fine, even if it's, quote, just the placebo effect. Yeah, that is, uh, <clears throat> that is powerful. And I've, I've read about doctors who have used targeted uh, 
drugs, but had the patients do a uh, guided imagery, you know, mm-hmm. and just using their intention and and their imagination guide the drug directly to its target and it had such a better such a better result you know mm-hmm. something so simple and you're right why are we not incorporating this why is this not a part of western medicine it really it really should be um scott you know i know talking to a few people preparing for today they're like you got to get the goods from him, man. You got to, you know, he's, he, he's supposed to teach us how to become a Jedi. I mean, what's, where's the oh, superpowers, you know, what's, what's happening. So can you, well, you tell must us- feel the force, right? Didn't it Yoda yeah. you know, it comes, uh, comes from within or something. That's right. <laughs> he and, and all that, you know, what, uh, let's, let's just delve into it a little bit. I know like even, even in your first book talking about how, uh, people that were still in contact with like the magnetic fields of the earth and that could, you know, find their way home and the way animals can geolocate and, you know, migration and, and just how we've lost that and how we can regain it as a species. What are some other examples like that? All right. Maybe it's not telekinesis or, or not, you know, not this decade, but what, what are some other possibilities? Like, what are you, what are you open to? What should we keep on our radar screen? Uh, well, so in, in, uh, I think that we need to, to put ourselves in stressful situations and, and, and remember that we are the environment that we inhabit because the environment's always giving us signals of various sorts and our brain is processing those signals. So when we talk about direction sense, and I, I write about this in What Doesn't Kill Us, um, there were people, especially in the um, Pacific, who were able to navigate between islands um, and always seemed to know north, right? They didn't. They they didn't even just use the the stars to guide them. They looked at other things around them, and they trained and they really studied that. Um, it was called um, wave. It's called wave pilots. I forget the 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 original language word word for it. There was also um, Aboriginal languages in Australia where they didn't have terminology for left and right. They only had northeast, south, and west. So they always use the cardinal directions. So it seems to indicate that humans have the ability to sense, um, mag- it, maybe it's magnetic north, maybe it's something else that I'm not aware of, you know, but they sort of have this innate direction sense. We know that birds have this direction sense. We know, you know, we've heard stories about dogs being able to find their way home from impossible distances. I mean, there is this animal sense to understand the world, but however we, however that arises in us, and I can only make guesses and you can only make guesses because I'm not I'm not one of those people but it arises because you're in the environment and you you're trying to use it and we know that if your your hippocampus is where direction sense arises in the brain and we know that taxi cab drivers in London who are current taxi cab drivers um, their test is weird they don't get to use GPS when they're learning London London's sort of a crazy maze of streets they have actually really large taxi taxi cabs. They have large hippocampuses. Hippocampi. Hippocampuses are big in those people while they're taxi drivers. We know this because when they die, they have done autopsies. However, when they have, because they're always driving, they're always using the streets. However, we know that when they die and they've been retired for like 10 years, their hippocampuses are then revert to like sort of what we would consider a normal thing. So it's sort of like if you don't use it, you lose it um, situation. Now, I don't know 
what senses they might be using, but they might have senses that that I'm not totally aware of. Um, because, you know, again, our technology is sort of like this pillow around us that there that we take the easy way out. You know, if you're nowadays, you know, I don't know how to get to a restaurant that's only like three miles from my house. I'll turn on my phone. Like, where is that pizza joint? I don't want to take one wrong turn. But the wrong turns are actually important. And and that's what we're that's what we're missing these days. We're not actually putting ourselves up against stress. Now, I do think it's very, very important to reiterate that we don't want to do things that are dangerous, right? We, you need to use your brain to say, well, could I do this? Like, what would be the negative side effects? You know, I know that using the power of neural symbols, I could teach myself never to sneeze again. Why? And there's no reason not to train yourself never to sneeze again, right? You could train yourself. You, I could train myself maybe by putting really positive associations with heat to be to find a way that I could hold my hand in a fire and like, convince myself it's okay. That's a really dumb thing to do, right? <laughs> don't don't do that. So I think we we need to use this power of understanding how our sensory systems work. Um, uh, you know, smartly, like what do I want to achieve, and how can I how can I achieve that? Yes, that's very interesting. And I actually had a question for you because you've traveled the world quite extensively and you've witnessed the practices of other cultures. And I was just wondering if you could speak to what do you think is the state of the world? What's possible for us? And what are some lessons that you've learned from uh, living with other cultures? I mean, this, I don't know. I, I'm not a huge optimist for where our world's going to be in 50 years, um, you know, or 100 years. Uh, I mean, it, it seems like we, you know, the 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 world in general needs to rise up and realize that we're all connected um, because we are. Everyone, we're all part of this large superorganism of life itself on the planet, and we're treating ourselves as individuals, and that's a real problem. Because um, I, whoever I am, I, I've only arisen because of all my interactions with the other people around me, the the stresses that I've personally gone through, and and constant. Uh, interaction. And I think that we feel very isolated now all over the world. And I, I mean, I have only lived for long periods of time in the United States and India. Uh, but the, you know, the, the, we, we tend to have this idea that me, 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 I am the most important person, right? But if everyone's the most important per person, you get this really fractured sense of the world. And I'm, I'm worried that we're, that we're not going to be able to get to the next stage of like a sort of a whole species evolution until we understand it. It looks like we're destroying the planet, right? Um, I, I think that that we feel very comfortable in our lives. And you know what stress is, stress is very interesting because it makes people feel together. Because if I'm under stress and you're under stress, we can identify that that stress is the same. There's actually a sense to be like, oh, I empathize with your plight. And I think that because we're so comfortable, we have actually lost a sense of empathy. Now, the nice thing about the nice thing about COVID, if there's a nice thing about COVID, if there's a nice thing about this, um, the the racial violence that we're going through in the United States and the protests that are going along in the world is that it's actually an opportunity for us all to feel stress together and, and say, wait, your stress is my stress. And that maybe instead of just changing myself, the society changes from that. So I, I feel a little positive in our current moment that the difficulties we're going through could could potentially result in something that's really positive. Uh, alternately, we could just go right back, we could just be race back 
to our comfortable situation where we were before and just perpetuate the, the, the stagnation um, that we have as a nation and as a globe. So I don't know where it's going to go. I, I have no clue. Uh, but, uh, but I just I hope um, it will be for the positive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's let's hope that lessons are learned. So biohacking is kind of having a heyday. And as a as a leader and really a groundbreaker, like what what's the state of the union with biohacking today? Like what's good? What do you see out there that that is good? And what's what's not so good? Where are the dangers? So I find it sort of laughable to see the people who like really rely on technology, like people who are like putting red lights up their nose and wearing weird glasses and like becoming cyborgs. I mean, I look at those people and there's like some science behind it maybe or some or bro science anyway, but I find it silly. Like I don't want to become a better like robot. And I think that there's this whole genre of like nootropics. Take a pill to make you smarter. I think that's all dumb. Um, I, it might, maybe it works. I mean, I don't, I, I can't really talk to the science, but it seems to me silly. It seems to me un, inhuman because it's tilting us more and more to dependence on technology. Uh, for me, my insertion point is our sensory system. And, and, we, and I want to use my senses in order to, because the sensations correspond to changes in my body. So I figure if I can just get a, a real sensory map, right, and understand how all of my senses change my interior state, I feel like I'll be on the, I'll have the tool set that I was sort of evolved to use instead of becoming this, again, very, very me-centric, right? Sticking a red light up your nose is making yourself better, but it's not really sort of engaging with the materials that, that, um, that, we were born with and our actual um, abilities. And I think that there's this like general sense of fear of death as well in that biohacking community. There's these people like, I was talking with Dave Asprey, who I actually think Dave Asprey is a really smart guy. I think he's, a, he's got a lot of stuff right. But he did ask me this one question once where he was like, Scott, how long do you think you're going to live? I think I'm going to live, I think he said 180. I, you know, Dave, you can correct me. Um, but, but, and I, I listened to that. I was like, that's ridiculous, man. Like, if I die tomorrow, I want to be able to say that I lived a good life. Like, it's not the number. It's not absolute life that I care about. It's having big experiences because that is really the measure of life. And and I think that, the, that the, like, there's this tilt in that biohacking community to, to be afraid of what's definitely coming for all of us. Because we're all gonna die. You're gonna die, I'm gonna die, my pets are gonna die, kids, all that stuff's gonna die. And if we don't um, come, you know, accept that, that the inevitable, we can't truly live our life in the moment because we're living then for that remote death point. Yeah, yeah. Yes, no, and it's so uh, important to, to just live in the present. Uh, so what is next for you, Scott? Tell us about the wedge. Oh, so the wedge is out. You can already get it. Um, and, and the wedge is like, is, is basically, you know, I've been doing the Wim Hof method for 10 years and I wanted more. I wanted to understand how the fundamental principle of the of of what Wim is doing applies to every sensation, every emotion that we can feel. How is everything you're doing right now an opportunity for what you could do next? And that's really what informed that book. So I I looked at ten different things that I thought were particularly interesting, but I I barely scratched the top the the, the surface of everything that we could do. So uh, you know in, in that book I'm looking at um, taste, 
how is our sense of taste changes the world? And you think about your associations with taste and like pleasure, you know, you think about Cheetos advertising a party in your mouth, like what does that even mean? But somehow it's salient, why is that? Uh, I look at sensory deprivation tanks, you know, psychedelic drugs, and I'm trying to like create different sensory states in my body where I have a choice in my response. And I feel like by learning how to master that, um, I become more generally resilient. Now, I still love what doesn't kill us and the Wim Hof method. Again, I practice it all the time, but now I'm able to expand that toolkit a lot more broadly than what I was able to do before. So I would suggest, you know, pick that up. It's on Audible. It's on um, my website. You signed copies, all that stuff. It's all there on the internetosphere. So um, yeah, the wedge. That's awesome. Let's just touch briefly on on psychedelics. You know, I've seen recently some really interesting studies and some uh, anecdotal information of it being so powerful, especially for uh, different types of you know mental health issues. Like, do you do you think that there's a real way forward, a real future for microdosing uh, psychedelics to help with some of these things? Like, what do you what are you thinking? Well, psychedelics are amazing is because they create sensations, right? You know, you can't think about taking a psychedelic. You take the psychedelic for a sensation, right? You don't know what you're going to get because it's also a danger because you could go crazy. You know, honestly, I can't tell you that you'll do ayahuasca and you'll end up a better person. You might die. I don't fucking know. But, um, but the, it does create um, sensory environments where you have choices. And so I think that there's a real possibility for really transformational um, experiences. You know, I did MDMA with my wife with two clinical psychiatrists in the room. Um, and that was amazing because MDMA makes it basically impossible to have a bad reaction in, a com in, in any situation, right? So, I mean, I'm sure there is a way that you could have a bad reaction, but uh, you know, if I'm talking with my wife in a therapeutic setting and I say to her, I hate your mother, usually in a therapy session, the response is, well, I hate your mother, right? But when you're on MDMA, you can't have a negative reaction. You have to, you, ha you basically are chemically forced to empathize. So then you're like, well, tell me why, you know, I want to know more. So it really sort of like can, when combined with like intention, um, can create this really beneficial uh, therapeutic setting that then lasts into the future. Uh, and I also did ayahuasca. I've done mushrooms a few times, but I do think that these um, interventions need to be very rare, right? Because there's there's certain you've met these people who are like, yeah, I I've done on ten journeys this last year. You're like, you've done what? Or like a hundred journeys? I've done ayahuasca a hundred times. It's like, well. Why? Like, like uh, if you didn't get it the first or second time, then why are you still asking that question? So I think that we, you know, in all things, I'm sort of measured. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, try it and then try integrate it and then use it. Um, I've done ayahuasca three times in one week and I've never done it again. Um, and I think that that could be my entire experience with it. Or maybe I'll try it again in like three or four years. But I think that these sort of brief um, uh uh, interruptions in our in normal are really good, but you don't want to make it the new normal. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. So, Scott, what uh, what does the future hold for you? Where are you going from here? What are the next uh, the next adventures, or do you have a sense of it yet? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a book right now. It's actually up on my computer about um, uh, a. You know, I'm, I'm sort of going back to my investigative journalism and anthropology roots where I'm doing a book on 
uh, a storm that hit pa- uh, what it, what was then East Pakistan, which is now the country of Bangladesh, in 1970 and killed half a million people on impact. And how that storm um, sort, sort of fomented, it, uh, it was the deadliest storm in human history. So think of globally a giant stress, if we want to put this in wedge terms, right? So it, it, it then created a, um, it, it changed the result of an election that was going going to happen. It and the response from the government to that was to start a genocide, which started a revolution, which started to bring in the Cold War powers. Because remember, this is during Vietnam, and all, and and then the USA and USSR almost went to nuclear war over um, over this event, all started by a storm. So the, the, this book is like an allegory for what we might be looking at climate change in the future, because we're going to look into, into a world where we have more disease incidents, more um, uh, catastrophic storms, and we need to realize that everything is connected. And when something lands on our shores, it doesn't only land uh, you know, to kill people and whatever, it lands into political situations. And so I'm trying to connect our environment to our, our, our political sphere through allegory. That is so interesting. I will be looking forward to that book. That's uh, a topic that I'm very, very interested in. Um, so what words of wisdom do you have to leave our listeners today? feel deep, you know, just, just pay attention to your sensations and trust that they say something. You don't always know what they mean because some sensations are sort of flighty, but realize that they are important and that your body is telling you something about your environment. And I think that that is, you know, a great place to leave it. Awesome. Well, Scott, how can these guys find you? So my website is scottcarney.com. Just about all of the social media platforms I'm uh, S.G. Carney or Scott Carney, I mean, he probably shows up. And uh, yeah, and, and, you know, take a look at my books. You know, The Wedge is out now. I think uh, I, I think it's a great place to start. Um, I, what Doesn't Kill Us is also amazing. Um, and, you know, I have uh, my earlier work, too. You know, Enlightenment Trap is about how meditation can kill you. And it's fascinating. If you know somebody who, when you've had a bad day, they come up to you and say, well, it's because Mars is in retrograde. They're crazy, and this tells you why. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but what I hope and what I know that it's done for our listeners is just open open our minds, just open our minds to what is possible. And uh, thank you for kind of going there for all of us, being that uh, that adventurer, that explorer, that astronaut within our own human experience and uh we're gonna you know see where the what the future holds we're gonna keep learning and following you and encourage all these guys to buy the wedge uh and and definitely what doesn't kill us and thank you so much for your time today we really appreciate it all right well thank you so much for having me i appreciate you guys yes thank you all right thank you for listening to the mind body breakthroughs podcast We are now available on iHeart Podcasts and all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. As always, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, send us an email. Link in the show notes.